Hey everyone, it is producer Mackenzie here. I am getting the opportunity to turn the tables on Lindsay today and interview her because I want her to tell you all about this brand new offering that Onsite has. So, Lindsay, can you tell me what we're launching today? Yeah, we are launching a new emotional health masterclass on the topic of grief. And these new emotional health classes are just shorter, very topic driven, and will really be practical guides for people that are uh, just wanting to learn more about emotional health or struggling through something. And the one on grief in particular is just so important right now, because I think in the season that we're in and hopefully coming out of, so much of us have experienced so much loss, broken relationship, lost loved ones, unmet expectations. Um, we all are grieving something and a lot of us are grieving a lot of things. And so as I've gotten to digest this content, it has just been such a useful tool. It's helped normalize the experience of grief and it's helped me understand the biological process and the emotional process that we're walking through so that I have grace and clarity and some freedom as I move forward. Awesome. And we're just, I know our team has been hard at work on this. And I think one of the things I'm the most excited about is the accessibility of this. So what is the price point? When can I purchase it? Well, the classes are priced really affordably. They're just $69. It's half the most hours of therapy. Um, it's with one of our world-class clinicians. And you can buy it now at onsiteworkshops.com slash classes. Perfect. I hope that you'll check that out today. We are so excited to be launching it into the world. For our podcast listeners, we're offering $20 off if you use the code podcast at checkout. And Lindsay, thanks for letting me pick your brain about it. Oh, yeah. So excited for everyone to learn from Cindy about the topic of grief. It's a strange thing. You know, my wife's buried in the cemetery behind our house, and I'm raising a five-year-old little girl without her. That wouldn't qualify as a happy ending. But it's a pretty joy-filled ending. And first off, it's not an ending, it's a beginning. They're all beginnings. All the endings are beginnings of something else. But stories are filled with incredible ups and downs. And sometimes they're at the same time. The highest peak that you're on, you're also personally on some lowest peak. And rather than how I've probably looked at them in the past, which was like, I just want to avoid all the lowest peaks. I don't want to avoid those. That's where the magic is. Welcome to the Living Centered Podcast, where we enter into honest conversations about pursuing a more centered life, rediscovering, reclaiming, and rooting in to who we truly are. I'm your host, Miles Edcox. And I'm your host, Lindsay Nobles. I've come to find that many times in our lives, we often leave the hard parts of our stories untouched. It's pretty common to gloss over the things that bring us fear or pain instead of accepting them as an integral part of who we are and who we're becoming. 
As it turns out, owning our stories is truly one of the most beautiful gifts we can give ourselves and the world around us. And this week's guest has such an incredible way of fully embracing all the parts of his story. What an honor it was to sit down with my dear friend, Rory Feek. Now, we had this conversation well over a year ago, and though we intended to release this interview much sooner, we were delayed due to the pandemic, but I am so grateful that we are able to share his inspiring story with you now. Rory is a Grammy-winning music uh, singer and songwriter. He has found tremendous success in the music industry, but as he shares in this interview, he is most famous for loving his wife, Joey Feek, who many of you know tragically lost her battle to cancer in 2016, but not before winning the hearts and souls of millions of people who followed along with her vulnerable story of strength and love. At his core, Rory is one of the best storytellers I have ever known. And when you hear him tell his story, it is to immerse yourself in one that is full of beauty and pain. And he exudes joy on another level and brings light and love into the work that he does and the way he shows up. And I believe that this conversation will invite and inspire you to do the same. Welcome, my friend, Rory Feek. I'll start with... uh just saying thank you uh, for being a friend, but also for coming to be a part of this conversation. Uh, Rory Feek is with us today, and he's a guy that I look up to, that I've learned to love in a short amount of time. Honestly, we we it feels like we've known each other for for, for at least for me for a long time, but it hasn't mm-hmm. been that long just no. a, just a short few years. But in our conversations, as I'm sure that happens a lot with you, uh, they don't go anywhere but deep. And so when we do get time, uh, we always go there. And it started from the very first one we had. So I certainly admire um, what you do, which is a lot, uh, but I think I've, I've gotten uh, an inside look and probably admire who you are as much or more so than all the things that manifest from that. And I just, I respect you and I appreciate you and glad to call you a friend, but I'm excited about this conversation. So thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. I feel the same way about you and <clears throat> glad to come to your house for the first time and, and, uh, see your babies and your bride, and it's wonderful to be here. Well, uh, so many people um, know you because you've had somewhat of a public life, particularly a public profession, uh, but there, there are some and our, our um, listeners that, that won't. And so I, I would like to hear a little bit of your story just because it's so powerful. And I know, I know a lot of it, so I'll probably get specific in some areas, but I want to get to how it is that uh, you live the life that you live and what kind of intention and values that you put into it every day. But I want to start by backing up a little bit. And, and if you could tell us... Um, because uh, I know there's Rory that, that served our country as a Marine. Uh, there's Rory that was a, a single dad. Uh, there's Rory that was a songwriter that moved his life to Nashville and then met the love of your life. Uh, and, and then there's the Rory that is today, which we'll get to. But of all those seasons, what do you feel like was uh, one of the most impactful uh, that built the character that you try to live into today? Well, I think... What's the most surprising and interesting thing about where I am today is that my wife and I have had a really amazing music career and we won a Grammy and I've written a lot of songs people have heard on the radio and had a good career doing that. And with all the things that I've done, what's the most amazing and special is that I am 
most famous for loving my wife. Mm. And the reason that that's the most special is because if you look back at my life and the decisions that I made for most of my life, I would have been the least likely person you would have ever thought would be sitting here across the room from you in a chair talking to you about this because my life, you know, I made so many mistakes and I think the gift that God's given me of constantly being able to be new, especially new within your character. And so it all started, you know, when I was a young man, my father was a singer and he wanted to move to Nashville and he worked on the railroad and he passed away young. And uh, I somehow picked up that flag and carried it with me. And when I got out of the service, I found my way to Nashville and came here to write songs and and sing. And um, But while I was doing that, I've often said this, I've spent way too much time trying to be a great writer and not enough time trying to be a great man. And it was only after I'd had some success and realized that that was completely unfulfilling in my life. Mm. I was still just as empty, maybe more empty and more confused, that I really had to do some soul searching. And that really led me to a real faith. Before that, it was just a man in search of faith. And um, that was just a point of like true surrender. And once surrender happened, it was I was so terrified of it because I had met lots of Christians before, and I clearly did not want to be one of them. <laughs> I really did. I was like, I mean, I, in some ways I didn't because I felt like most of the guys were all, I don't take this wrong, but it felt like I was about to be neutered. <laughs> and everything that was exciting and amazing about life was going to get so boring, and I was terrified of it. I remember when I was young... I was probably most afraid of being ordinary, Mm. having an ordinary life. And it's so weird how all these years later, like anybody who's like lived simply and somehow they can live simply today, I find them incredibly extraordinary. But during that time for me, surrendering really was this time when Somehow it was as if I had been asleep for 33 years. And one day, just like that, I woke up and nothing has been the same ever since. Instead of it being boring, life is just, you know, just got on fire. It's on mm. fire. And and I, I just, I'm in awe of it. And that's a pretty amazing thing. Well, I think a, a lot of people can relate to the part of your story where you said, once I hit a certain level of success, I was surprised that I was even a bit more lost and confused uh, than I was on the way there. We, I see and hear and am surrounded by that narrative a lot. And what is, I'm just curious for you, what did that look like? What does lost look like? Well, me, it looked in particular uh, like I had a 56 Chevy. I just had my first number one song. I had two little kids. I was a single father. And it's the middle of the, no, it's morning time. The sun's rising. I'm still not remotely sober (laughs) in the car with some half-naked girl who was not my girlfriend. My girlfriend was somewhere else. 
And I had all these people who had traveled so far, my mother, my aunt and uncle, and all these people who were here supporting me for this number one song I'd written. And um, they had all come to town for this event, and I'd blown it out pretty good. The next morning, I was supposed to be meeting them all at Cracker Barrel here in Westmead area to have breakfast. And it was sunrise, and I remember just waking up and looking in the rearview mirror and just thinking, I just couldn't bear myself one minute more. And that was my most successful self. And if this is what it looked like, I just, I couldn't do it anymore. So right around that time, you know, I I had been surrendering. I'd been opening my hand little by little and trusting God and trusting my life. But right around that time, I just fully, fully opened the last of it. And it got a little scary for a little bit, and then it got a got really exciting because you know relate every relationship around me changed. It's like all of a sudden, I think what it was was, you know how we are. You say hello to people, and you say how are you doing, and they say fine. How are you doing? Well, nobody's actually asking how you're doing, mm. but for the first time in my life, like I really was asking, and people knew it, mm. and they started to respond on a level that I was not prepared for. I would be, I'd find myself in these conversations with people that I've known for five years and I know nothing about them because I've never actually asked them. Mm. And, um, you know, that just, even, even then it was like a little bit more of encouragement and more encouragement when something would happen and I would just feel this, this newness happening in my life and in my heart. It would encourage me to take, a little bit braver step, a little bit more vulnerable step, a little more honest step. And and uh, before long, I wasn't just taking baby steps. I was running in that direction. Wow. I'm still running. Mm. Well, I love, I think everybody can relate to kind of a mirror moment. Uh, yours being the rear view mirror, some of us being a mirror, and some of us not looking in a mirror at all, but just facing that part of ourselves that... Uh, we had probably been hiding or running from, or at least hiding parts of it from the world. And then suddenly there it was, or there it is face to face. And, uh, it reflective of somewhat of the hero's journey, uh, when Mm -hmm. you kind of face that big, dark part of ourselves. And I have seen, I've lived long enough and experienced it myself and, and walked with thousands of people through the back end of that. And if only you could display the beauty on the other side of that moment, but in some ways, I don't know that we need to because I don't. I wouldn't want to rob people of that experience of facing some challenging parts of themselves. But you brought up an interesting point, which I think is relative to people in the search of living a balanced and centered life, which is if we're not asking others how they are with the intent of really wanting to know, then my guess is we don't have the ability to ask ourselves. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the hardest questions I've ever asked myself. I treated myself much like this was back, you know, when I was on the path of trying to find my way, I treated myself much like what you described, how you would greet someone, how you doing? Well, I'm fine. And there's a funny acronym in, in therapeutic circles or in our world about fine that we say, which is freaked out, insecure, neurotic, and emotional. (laughs) So if anybody answers that they're fine, that's you usually what they really mean. Right. And as I as just thinking about your part of that is I think that's a good barometer for many of us that if we 
are asking people a short-sighted question and don't necessarily have the bandwidth or the empathy to hold the real answer or invite it, uh, then chances are we're probably hiding that part uh, from the world. I loved also that you started this conversation by saying, I set out to uh, put my art into the world and, and pursue potentially fame in some other way. And you experienced that. But ultimately today, as a man, you're famous for loving your wife. Mm-hmm. And you hear songs about that, um, it, but it's hard to execute and pull off, particularly to have a reputation for it. And I think your story particularly is really unique because I, I know some of the the story as it is currently, but you re, you still re, reflect it as if it's in real time, which I've always thought found interesting in, in uh, both an honoring and respectful way to talk about Joey. But talk about uh, how you went from the rearview mirror moment to running towards life to finding the love of your life. Well, that was in, see, my first number one song was the, the end of 1998, I think. That was around the time this tall, dark-haired girl named, with a boy's name, Joey, was moving to Nashville from Indiana. I didn't meet her still for a while. But she showed up at a gig that I had at the Bluebird Cafe, and I had been praying that God would bring a great woman into my life. And I had come to realize by then that the reason I had had a lot of, a lot of trials and it hadn't gone well with relationships, and he hadn't brought a great woman into my life, was first off, I was not a great man, and she was not going to show up until I was. Secondly, you know, they might have even been, my guess is they they probably were the right person for someone, but I wasn't the right person for them at the time. And so, as God was working on my character, and I was working on my character, and I was really sincerely praying that he would bring something good into my life. I remember thinking, it doesn't have to be great. I would love extraordinary, and but I had it been so bad. I'd been a single father by then for 10 years or something, and I'd made a mess of so many things, especially relationships. I was just, just bring me, let me experience just a little bit of something good. And that's why when Joey showed up, she showed up in such an unusual way. First off, she was in uh, in the audience at a show at the Bluebird Cafe. And she had moved to Nashville to be a singer, but she had an unusual path to being a singer. Her, her way of doing it was she was going to get a job 60 miles away, 50 miles away, down in Lewisburg area at a horse vet clinic. And she was never going to come to town. And she was going to work helping horses, and somehow that would happen. And it's exactly kind of what happened. She just, you know, she met one person who introduced her to somebody all from the horse world. And make a long story short, she found herself in the audience of the Bluebird. And to hear her tell the story, she heard me singing these songs uh, and telling these stories, which were mostly about, probably about the character I wished I had the love I wished I had, the life I wished I was living. And she just knew in that moment that I was the person she was going to spend the rest of her life with. And when we did finally meet, that's the first thing that she told me, was that she had seen me play there and that she knew that in that moment. Well, that was very... She told you that. She told me that the very first time we talked. 
And I'd never heard anything like that before. And because I'm, I'm a creative person and I've written lots of songs, these are the kinds of songs I write. <laughs> yeah. Those are the kind of lines I'll use, but they're not real. Right. And so when she showed up using the kind of line that I would have used, I, I was really, th- and she's so beautiful. Stunning. And so like, why me? Like this guy in overall sitting at, at the Bluebird Cafe with two kids, you think you're supposed to be with me? And so I remember, you know, for the next little while, really questioning that, really praying about that. And and one day, Joey and I had written one song together and I was, I had prayed. I said, you know, God, if I'm really supposed to be with this girl, I need you to sh- give me a sign. Now, I'd probably prayed that lots of times, but I'd never prayed it where I was. I've never never prayed it where he was in a position that I think he knew I was listening, really listening. So um, right around that time, I went to the Bluebird Cafe again, and Joey got up and sang a song. My sister Candy was with me that night. And afterwards, we went over, and uh, I said it her apartment with her mother. Her mother was in town, Joey's mother. And I asked questions. I said, so um, how did you learn to play guitar? And she said, well, my dad played guitar growing up. And I said, well, my dad did too. Like, what kind of songs did your dad play? She said, well, he played just songs. My mom and dad sang these songs. I don't know who sang them. They were old country songs. I don't know whose they were. I said, my dad sang old country songs. I don't know whose they were. Mm. Like what? And she picks up a guitar and she starts to sing this 1950s Jim Reeves song called, Have I Told You Lately That I Love You? And my sister jumps up out of the rocking chair, just crying. So she runs into the bathroom because she had been watching. She knew that I had been praying and working. And, uh, and she knew that there was this thing where I was trying to see if Joey was the right person or she wasn't. And, and she knew that I had, I'd questioned it. And uh, my father only knew like 10 songs and that was his favorite song. It's, it's the only song they had sung in his funeral. I'd been in Nashville seven years and no one had ever mentioned the title of that song. No one ever sang it to me. And there she was singing it. Wow. So in that moment, it was like confirmation where whatever questions I had, he made it so clear that I went, I'm in and I am still in. I mean, it's, that's, that's 2002. And uh, I never questioned again. And I'm someone who spent most of my time up until that moment, half in and half out of every relationship. And I was never, never one moment out of this one. And it's made all the difference. So we got engaged right after that. We got married two months later, and it was kind of an arranged marriage because God made it clear. <laughs> and we didn't know each other. Like I had two children. I was 30, I was 35 years old. Joey was 26 when we got married. And like I said, I wanted something good. And I thought all the other choices that I'd made didn't bring me something good. So what if trying something hard could bring something good? That's good. Well, it did. But first it brought something much harder, which was 
Joey had never really thought that she was going to be a mother. And I had two children who were teenagers at the time and they had never been around their mother. So they desperately needed a mother and Joey didn't really know how to be one. I, I needed someone who wanted to be a mother and stay home and help take care of the kids because I'd been raising them on my own and they could be there with my girls and with me and live a normal life. And yet God had given me this girl who was a singer, who had plan- who was really talented, who had plans to get out on the road and change the world, which made me incredibly insecure. <laughs> she needed someone who could stay home with the kids so she could go on the road. And she thought I would be perfect because I'd already been a single father. So what ended up happening is her agenda and my agenda just shattered in a million pieces that first year. And it was really hard. And then sometime after that, I remember we just started trying to figure life out. We just hung in there and we just kept going and we knew God had us there for a reason. And I remember waking up one day and looking across the room and just realizing, because I didn't really know Joey very well when I married her, but I remember looking across and uh, being so clear that this woman had more integrity and character and heart and security and all these things that I'd never been around before, that I, I had married an incredible woman. And I didn't know it really at first, but I remember waking up and just thinking, how did I get so lucky? And somewhere in there, she woke up the same way. And from there, God God really built an incredible love story out of two broken hearts. Even a, a year after we had been married, I, I sometimes like to think, you know, Joey had her page she was trying to get me on. I had my page I was trying to get her on. And God closed those books, opened up his own book and tried to, you know, he needed us to clearly be on his page. And once we did that, everything changed and we just settled into a life and a marriage. You know, you, you ask how we went from here to there. That's That's a lot of the beginning stuff. Well, I think there's an important point in there that because there's so many people that are listening to this that are either looking for companionship, partnership, relationship, marriage, or maybe in it and struggling, and and then some that are that have pushed through both of those and doing really well, and and it is pretty typical that year one is one of the hardest years. I mm. experienced the same thing, and so to hear that uh, your I love the way you frame that that your million dreams shattered. Mm-hmm. in year one of marriage and then somehow God took two broken hearts and and created something pretty special. So I hope that is uh somewhat humanizes the mm-hmm. idea of a merging of two human beings. It is it is beautiful, it is messy, it is worth it, but it is hard. Uh I describe it sometimes as like um Sometimes somebody put this huge oak tree right in the middle of my living room and I never could look at my home the same. I was trying to look around it and get around it and I could no matter what I did, it was another human being that was there. And the merging of our lives uh, took an untangling and untethering. And I wish they don't 
tell you that in marriage counseling mm-hmm. a lot. They don't say, oh, yeah, by the way, year one, stuff's going to hit the fan, and mm-hmm. uh, your job will hopefully have enough grace, and you'll have no idea what to do about it. Um, but somehow, if you hang in there and see one another, there is a chance to build something beautiful out of that. Yeah, for sure. And then your, you know, the love story beyond that is quite famous. I'm glad you told the origin of it, uh, but then it, it it was very public because you guys merged up and and you know a duet. And well, the thing that again is I, I think what I walk around with today, like I just walk around in awe of the story that I've been part of, of the love story I've been part of, the story I'm still part of. It's not just an honoring to Joey. It's it's truly, like, I know how this started. I know the mistakes that I made. I know the long shot that it was. All I wanted was a little bit of something good. And five years later, Joey's career went nowhere. She's opened a restaurant with my sister just down the road from our farmhouse kind of given up on her dreams. My music career had done well and um, it turned out, but I, I had been, when I met her, I was incredibly insecure about her being a singer because I'd been around the music industry and almost no one survives the music industry. Almost no marriages survive. It's very difficult. Sure. You know, maybe your second or third marriage, maybe, <laughs> but usually it's very difficult. And so I was incredibly insecure about it. And I thought, there's no way we're going to make it through this. But then five years later, through a friend of a friend, I wrote a song one day with this guy named John Bollinger, who I didn't know. He was a friend of a friend. I almost didn't make the appointment. But he came to the farm, and at lunch, he was a wonderful guy. It was just, it was a great day already. And at lunch, I brought him down to the restaurant, and we uh, had lunch, and he met my wife. And he, he looked around, and he saw something that we couldn't see right in front of us. And he called us uh, maybe two weeks later and asked us to have coffee with him. And he said, besides being a songwriter, I'm also the band leader for television shows like Nashville Star and some other ones. And CMT is doing a new TV series called Can You Duet, where they're looking for America's next great country duo. And he said, I think you guys are it. And we, we like looked at each other thinking, what are you talking about? He goes, you guys are it. It's like, we don't even sing together. I don't, I'm a songwriter. She's a singer. And he said, you don't understand, like, this this is what you guys are. And he said, you just have to trust me. And I, I remember being terrified because we didn't have a television. And the, the last thing I wanted to do was be on one. And I'd seen enough of American Idol to know that they usually start with a bunch of outtakes of people who are being thrown under the bus. And I could see the guy in the overalls. Just making a terrible, <laughs> terrible departure in, in episode one. <laughs> but when we walked to the truck, my wife, you know, just, you know, she asked, she took my hand and she said, would you do this for me? So we tried out for the show. And um, what happened is my wife let me go to Best Buy and I, I bought a little handheld camera. And being a storyteller, they said, you need to make a DVD of you singing together. Well, we didn't really sing together yet, so we had to figure that out. But I wanted to mostly tell the story, so I filmed my wife. At, actually, Aaron, my cousin, and I filmed Joey opening the restaurant at 4 o'clock in the morning. One morning, 2007, December of 2007. And, you know, 30 degrees in there and lighting the fire and her and my sister baking pies and... 
and me writing songs and feeding the cow and the chickens. And we told this little seven-minute story, and my wife delivered that DVD with a roll of, of sticky buns to the producers, and we got on the show. <laughs> and we went from 5,000 people down to the final three. Wow. We ended up signing a record deal selling half a million albums, wow. traveling all over the world, making, you know, dozens of music videos at home and in television specials, having our own TV show, winning a Grammy, all of that. And I, it's, it's like God knew, you know, when he whispered in her ear and he said, him, it would have been... It would have been way, way enough for me if he just whispered in her ear and he let us have something good, a good marriage. And by five years, we had discovered that. So it's like, we won the lottery. But somehow he also knew, and I have these other plans for you. And the things that I thought would work against us, which is me and overalls, and we live on a farm and we sing traditional country music and stories are the things are the things I thought would hurt are the things that helped the things that make people remember you and um so that's how our music career happened and then and then life went on and one day after all of that and I'll stop talking for a little bit my wife came to me and this is a big deal there was one way to have a fight with my wife she was the most betty crocker cooking jesus loving gal you ever met in your life but you don't talk about having a baby with her like she, she trusted him completely, but not with that one. Mm. She, I think it was that she, she wanted a music career and her mother had wanted a music career and her mother had given it up to have five children back in Indiana. And she'd seen that. And she also knew what a terrific mother her mom was. And if she had kids, you're going to do it really well or you're not going to do it. And so she was never going to have children. Plus she was terrified of having a baby physically. And so we never, you know, we, we, we didn't want to have that conversation. We would have the fight sometimes just cause I would, I'd bring it up and I'd be like, really? Like, you don't even want to talk about this. Not that I wanted to have any more children, but it was so clear that she, she had a grasp on this. And I, I had seen what God had done with the things I have a grasp on. So I was like, Ooh, ooh. If what if God requires this of her? Like I got this weird feeling he might, and I was scared for her. Where I would just tease her sometimes, like maybe we should have a baby. That didn't go well. But one day, out of nowhere, after we were married about ten years and all this music stuff had happened, she came to me and said, "She said, you know, we have been blessed beyond our wildest imaginations. I." cannot keep holding anything from him. So she said, let's trust him. That, that was like, it was impossible. Again, it was like a mountain had moved. And I, I, although I wasn't sure by then I was 48 and my girls were grown 24 and 26 or something. But when God had moved that and opened that door, it isn't about me. It's about her. And I knew it was. And I said, I'm in. Whatever you want, whatever. And so we just trusted him. And then she got pregnant. (laughs) 
we had a baby in February of 2014 named Indiana, a little girl. <laughs> and that is one special little girl. I have yeah. So that, again, if our story had stopped being profound then, I don't know how it could have got any better or any more special. But as you know, it did. Hey friends, Mackenzie here. Isn't this interview so powerful? Roy's incredible way of articulating grief is such a gift. The topic of grief is a big one because the truth is it affects every single one of us as human beings. Right now, it seems like everybody is experiencing some level of loss, pain, or hurt. We're all grieving something and most of us are grieving several things. Our grief is highly personal, but it's also universal. Everybody grieves. And even though our experiences can look drastically different, the way we process these experiences is actually a very specific and predictable biological process. Knowing we're grieving doesn't always help us gracefully move through this process. Onsite's newest emotional health masterclass, The Ways We Grieve, Understanding the Emotional and Biological Process that Binds Us All, was created to help us normalize our own experiences with grief give some insight into how we grieve, and invite us into a place of hope, peace, and wisdom. We believe that investing 80 minutes into your healing through this class will help you navigate your journey in a whole new way as you move through and forward with your grief. To check out this new offering from OnSite, head to onsiteworkshops.com slash classes. And for our podcast listeners, we're offering $20 off if you use the code podcast at checkout. Now, granted, I, you do have an advantage of, of being a, a storyteller for a living, but the clarity and, and uh, the way you pull us in, it's almost like I don't even want to ask questions. I just want to sit here and listen uh, to this beautiful love story. But I can imagine, um, as with every love story, there can be some painful parts and some beautiful parts, and particularly one that is well known by a lot of people because uh, you're not, not only did you have that huge music career, but you know, the, the blog and all, just everything has exploded and people know your story. Uh, but people don't just know, um, the parts that you've told so far. I think most everybody knows that there was a, there was a tragic kind of unthinkable circumstance that, that happened as part of the story. And if, if you'd be open to sharing sure. that piece. Well, the first thing that happened was we had the baby at home and it was magical. Both of our older daughters were there and a midwife, Miss Pamela. So we decided to stop everything and take a year off and just be with the baby. And at that time, since I wasn't going to be writing songs, we weren't going to play in concerts, we weren't doing television, we weren't doing anything, I decided to start writing a blog. And for some random reason, I decided to call it This Life I Live, Scenes from One Man's Extraordinary Ordinary Life, because I had seen enough of them happen that I wondered what happens if you go completely counterculture, like right in your biggest musical career time, mm-hmm. if you take a year off and you say, I just want to be present, I want to dig in on the farm, into the soil, I want to dig into our community and be home and be present and be with this little one that we're about to have. And so I started this blog just as a creative outlet and also to capture this time. I thought we were going to be homesteading and I was going to tell a homesteading story about, you know, growing a bigger garden in the springtime and chickens and all those things. We're taking a year off. 
and no more music, no more anything. And I'm going to try and capture it. And we believe God is going to give us a great story, even though it looks like it's not going to happen because we're, we're not going to be doing anything but being at home. But I said those words and, um, and we shot that little piece of video and um, within a couple of weeks, Indiana was born and we found out without, we had no idea because we had never really gone to a single doctor's appointment, but we found out that Indiana had Down syndrome. And that was a bit of a shock to our system, but my wife was not phased really in the least. And and because she wasn't phased, I wasn't phased. Like there might've been a little grief for just a moment trying to figure out what it, what this means. And then you just held that baby and just were like, Realize, no, this is going to be the greatest thing ever. And um, and then, as Joy's holding the baby, a, another thing happened that I just wasn't expecting. She's just holding the baby, and she's like, uh, yeah, I think we need to have five of these. Wow. And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, what has happened? I, I started to get a little worried then. But I was, again, <laughs> I just couldn't believe how God had turned her heart so much. But at the same time, I also could sense what was actually happening is that which we are most afraid of is that that we most need. Mm. And for her, it's 100%. The thing she's most terrified of is the thing that's going to bring her the greatest joy. And she was born to be a mom. She's perfect at it. She loved it. She was great at it. And she was in love with the baby. Um, maybe six weeks later, something like that, she goes to see the doctor and just to have a follow-up. And she was really going to talk to her about a plan to have more children. And I went to Starbucks with the baby in the back seat, went through the drive-thru, pull up. Joy gets in the car and says, she was really shaken up. And she says that the doctor thinks that she, that there's a mass on my cervix and she thinks it might be cancer. This is six weeks after having the baby at home and nobody had ever seen or heard of anything. And my wife is the absolute healthiest eater. She makes all the greatest choices. She's so aware of what she does with her body. And then that became a whole other thing. We went through tests and with a brand new newborn and then she was diagnosed with cervical cancer had a really difficult surgery, and in that surgery, she had to have a full hysterectomy, which means no more babies. And that was very hard on her because she had specifically prayed for babies or mm. for an answer if she could have more babies, and she just took it that God answered that. That's not the answer she wanted, but it's the answer he gave. And she got better. And for a year or so, that whole first year, um, we just had an amazing journey. And then um, we started singing again a little bit more. And uh, when Indy was about 15 months old, she got diagnosed again mm. with stage four cancer. And then it became a whole other thing. By then, people had started, my blog had grown from you know, maybe hundreds of people to thousands of people. And by the time Joey had gone through more surgeries, chemo and radiation, and by that following October when she and I basically said enough is enough 
and we stopped all treatment and came home because nothing was working and it was moving too fast. By then, millions of people had started to follow our story through the blog. We moved back home. We actually went home to visit Joey's family for three or four days just for a weekend to kind of say goodbye to our hometown. And we never came back. We stayed there for five months and lived there and just surrounded by her family. Me and Indy lived in a in a bedroom at a house that Bill Gaither let us stay in at his place. And it was the most terrible, incredible, life-changing five months with my wife on hospice. And as you know, just lots and lots of people followed our story. And Joey became highly aware, and so did I in that moment, that that this was a very unique thing that was happening. That God had taken our story and given us so much more than we had hoped for in, in a beautiful love story and a career, and also a baby, and a unique baby. But now, all of a sudden... Uh, she was going through cancer, and she had chosen to go through it publicly and share all of it together on a blog, all the pictures, everything that we were doing. And from that, we realized that lots of people get to be famous. Nobody gets to do this. Nobody. We knew that what fame we had been given was probably just God was using that so that people could see this and find the story because what she was doing by being that brave in front of people. And uh, I've said this before, you've probably heard this, is I would tell my wife, you know, I would give anything if it was me and not you, which I would have expected because my choices were not near as good as hers. And she deserved much more. But she, her answer was always the same. You know, but if it was me, who would be here to write about it? And it was this strange convergence of I was a storyteller. And I could, I could put our feelings in our life and our experiences in words and pictures and share them with people. And so we did. And and um, Joy passed away in March of 2016, right after Indiana turned two. And we had to somehow load in our car and drive home to Nashville, to our farm outside of Nashville, and start building a new life. Well, I have, like the rest of the world, uh, followed that story when it happened. And then I've had the opportunity to to sit with you and hear it in real time uh, a couple of times. And then one of the things that helped shift uh, my perspective was hearing your story and hearing Joey's story uh, because it is tragic and it is painful. And we've already shared tears in the last 30, 45 minutes that we've sat together and walked through it. But somehow I'll walk away from it with just as much beauty as I do pain. And I think that's the gift of you as a storyteller, but I more so think it's the gift of the life she lived mm-hmm. and uh, probably still living. Mm-hmm. And uh, is that she had this, un- and, and that is grief. It's this beautiful um, and painful mixture of uh, pain and beauty when it's allowed to breathe. And so I, I just first want to value and honor um, that story. And I hope you keep telling it because I think it's a story that deserves to be told. Uh, and um, 
and, and I'm glad to be on the receiving end of holding space for it. Thank you. Appreciate it. We have had and serve a lot of people who've gone through tragedy, and which tragedy often can create something we work with and specialize in at onsite called trauma, you know, just going through adversity in life. And everybody handles it differently uh, based on how they're wired. And some people use it as a launching pad to um, live their best and most present life. And for some people, it takes them through seasons of dark periods that they find they need to medicate and numb. And that's the part I'd love to hear about. And there's unfortunately in the time we have, which we don't have a lot of time left, but we don't get to hear every story because they are mind-blowingly poignant. Yeah, That's all I can say is there are some unmistakable things that happened in the way that she lived, in the way that she died, uh, in your love story, pre and post, that will literally chills and tears every time I hear them. Maybe, there, maybe you could do one of those uh, stories if, if we've got time, but I really want our audience to be able to hear what's happened post that and how has it imprinted who you are and how you're living today. Well, I, I, w- I want to tell you one of those stories because it will lead to where I am today. And that is that while we were having a music career, a couple of years before Indiana was born, we were making our third album and Joey had a friend who worked at the horse vet clinic that she that she worked with named Sandy Lawrence. And she was a great songwriter, but had never been discovered. And so we decided to record one of Sandy's songs. And we chose one that she had written for her mother who had passed away and Sandy had had a hard time dealing with grief and missing her mother. So she wrote this song called When I'm Gone and we went in the studio and recorded it really to honor Sandy. And it was a great song, but the recording was so special. So we decided to do it at home. And we were going to just do a performance video where we were just singing it. And the guys around me, my neighbors and friends that had always made stuff with me, Gabe and B.A. and Aaron, they came to us and said, what if you act this out? And it was, we realized what that meant was in this storyline, Joey's going to be singing to me as if she's passed away and I'm living at the house by myself without her and she's buried in the cemetery. And and at first we were both like, no, 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 we can't do that. And so we just shot it down. But then we talked about it and we said, no, that's, that's what the story wants. And then if you fast forward uh, and that music video came out, lots of people saw it and we, we were very proud of it. Very, very proud of it. But we never really thought anything about it until this had happened and time, Joey's time was coming close. And we realized that God had somehow allowed us to make something that foreshadowed exactly what was going to be happening. And what is exactly happening now? I live in, in our house by myself, sleep in the same bed that Joey and I slept in. Um, and I visit her in a cross in the cemetery, the same cemetery we walked to when we said God's going to give us a great story. And that's profound. I don't even know what to do with it. Like it's it's art meets, uh, life meets art, imitates art, imitates life. It's, it's, a, it's a huge gift. So I say that to come all the way around to where am I, am I now. This last January, I went to um, Living Centered program. I know a lot of people who had gone to Living Centered uh, my cousin went, my oldest daughter, Heidi, went, changed both their lives along with a number of other people. And so I decided to go in January, but 
I want to tell you my living centered story because I'll tell you at least some of it because it's very it's very important to me. I went in an unusual way because everyone else that I know that's gone, they gone with specific pain and trauma and things that they're they've had a hard time dealing with for a long time that they know they need to deal with. I went with a different concern. And my concern was, why am I okay? I went to figure out what's wrong with me because I'm okay. In spite of everything that's happened, all I feel is gratitude. I don't feel angry. I don't feel, I don't, I mean, grief will overcome me and I'll find myself, you know, crying and hurting, but mostly it's overshadowed by all the gratitude that I feel. And I don't know what's wrong with me. (laughs) <laughs> so that's that's number one. Number two, I went with this feeling that I, I had some shame inside of me. I didn't know what it was. I had something inside of me. I still have it a little bit, but not much. Like you just, me, me being here, being interviewed by you. It's been very difficult for me to be me hmm. because I was always going to be behind the scenes as a songwriter. And somehow I've been brought to the forefront and I'm still at the forefront and Joey's not here now. And she brought me there and I feel I've, I've struggled with that. I've struggled with, you know, my, my star rising as hers isn't anymore or anyway, I've struggled with that. So I went to, I went to onsite <clears throat> to try and understand those things. After being there a couple of days, I came to realize this is not what you do there. <laughs> so I thought, okay, well, that's no problem. I'm sure it'll be great for me. We got to um, surrender our cell phones. I loved all that. Got to meet all kinds of people. Nobody had a last name. It just, uh, it was just like camp, but camp for the heart. And it was so good. But something happened um, about three or four days in. There was a man, um, well, there was a man who uh, who had been struggling, and he came one or I would always go have coffee at the big house early in the morning, and he came and sat next to me, and he asked me if he could talk to me. And he said he, his wife had passed away, and it's a long story, but he was struggling, really, really struggling, and he he wanted to be brave in his session, and <clears throat> he didn't know if he could, and we were talking told him, you know, about the things that scare us the most or are probably what what will set us free the most and that we'll get the most joy out of. And I told him a story about my life and how I had gone I had done some really terrible things when I was younger and I had been forgiven greatly. Forgiven greatly. And I've I've spoken about it in my book, like forgiven greatly. Like and it's it's caused me to I forgive very easily. I don't hold grudges. It's just my nature um, because I've been forgiven greatly. Well, we leave. I tell him the story, and then him and I are running late. We run in there, and Bill Loki's leading the session, and Bill has this whole thing where he's he's talking about uh, forgiveness in the session. And I said, well, I said, I looked at the guy next to me, and I'm like, I was just talking about forgiveness. I said. I know forgiveness really, really well. 
And then he says, in this video, we're going to use a video clip. This is what Bill, the guy who's running the session, says. But it's not the guy that we usually had. It's a different video clip. And in this video clip, it's going to be this, this scene from Les Miserables. And this guy next to me, who I just said that about Forgiven, he taps me on the shoulder and he goes, hey, it's you, because Liam Neeson comes on the screen. And that was so weird to me, because since I'd got to OnSite, I'd been there four days, and I bet 10 people had come up to me and said, you look like Liam Neeson. Or are you Liam Neeson's little brother? I mean, it was so weird. I've had that happen like twice in my whole (laughs) life, and it happened 10 times there. And he said, hey, it's you on screen. And I, was, and I was joking. I was like, don't judge me on it. It's one of my early works. I was just <laughs> learning to act or something. I was just being silly. And I realized it's Les Miserables playing. And I had seen it, but I didn't really get a lot out of the movie. I don't know if it, I, I don't know. I, so I didn't know the movie that well, but they start to play this thing. And they play this scene with Jean Valjean. And they, and what happens in the scene is... Uh, Jean Valjean has has been released from prison and he's gone on and he stole something. He's done something really, really bad. And the person that he stole it from, he, he ends up getting caught and brought back to the person that he's stole it from, which is this bishop. And the police are with him and the police are telling him, uh, we, we've caught this guy, he's stolen your stuff, you know, and, and you know, and we've, we're bringing it back to you. And the bishop looks at him and says, thank you so much. I told you when you take the candlesticks, you should also take the silverware or whatever it happens to be. You should take, all th- I was going to give you all the rest of it. And so they tell him like, he, you meant for him to have that? And he's like, yes, I gave it to him. And they set him free. And uh, they He's Jean Valjean is just standing there next to the bishop and he says, Why would you do this? Why would you do this? And Jean Valjean looks at him and says, You have been forgiven. And tells him, I'm paraphrasing, but he basically says, God has given you a new light to go do great things with it. And it was so clear to me in that moment, although it was not in your curriculum, that like Jean Valjean, the people had been pointing at me saying, you look like Liam Neeson. It was all, for me, it felt like in that moment, God was basically telling me, you have been forgiven greatly. You know it. And you're in awe of what he's done and what he's doing. And it's why you can only see the good is because you know where it came from. And it, and it really helped me to understand why I'm okay. I'm okay because I should be okay. I mean, I still have grief, but I'm okay because I know that what he's done, it's not just a tragic story. It's the most beautiful, tragic, wonderful, precious, heartbreaking, loving story, and I've somehow been been able to be part of it. So that was the first thing that happened at Living Center. Number two, they do this thing called exper- experiential therapy, experiential, right. and we have this moment. I don't even know if you're supposed to talk about this. I talk about it all the time. <laughs> I talk about on-site a lot. I talk about the Living Centered program because it impacted me so greatly. And in this particular part of this therapy, it's a small group therapy, and 
we're, we're talking, you, you get to choose people in your group to be someone. And so I have different people being different, doing different things, but there's this one thing, there's a lady with long, dark hair in my group and she's Joey for me. Mm. And I get to talk to her and I don't know what I'm going to talk about. I just know I need to talk to her about something. And it has something to do with this shame that I feel, with this, my heart's broken that that I'm somehow still being lifted up, and she can't be. So, I... Uh, I talking to this girl and and they they say what would you like to say to her and I basically say Joey you know I I didn't even want to do this I didn't want to do this I thought this was a bad idea I didn't even want to try out for the TV show it wasn't even something I meant to do and I f- feel some shame like I feel like I'm doing something wrong now and I need to know it's okay. So, of course, in this, this therapy thing, they like, switch. So now I become Joey and the lady becomes me. Yeah, reverse and, roles. Yes, reverse roles. And so the, she has the lady, the therapist has the lady talk to me, and she tells me that. And she says, and Joey, what do you want to say to Rory? Well, I have no idea what's going to happen But in that one moment, out of my mouth comes these words. When I saw you at the Bluebird Cafe all those years ago, 15, 16 years ago, and when God tapped me on the shoulder and said, Him, He was saying, he's the one I want you to spend your life with. He's the one you're going to have a love story with. He's the one you're going to sing with. And when you're gone, he's the one who's going to keep going and keep telling stories and keep sharing. And the reason I needed you to pick him is because I can't get him from the bluebird to hear without you. That was very profound for me to realize that my wife had somehow, God using my wife had picked me from obscurity, a single father with no character at the time in the Bluebird Cafe, singing songs, thinking that that was all I was ever going to be or do and delivered me to a place to where I could do more than that. Is just, it's mind-blowing. And so that happened at OnSite. And everyone I know has had similar experiences to where they've had release. They've had um, profound moments and understanding. And um, so it's great. So thank you for that. Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for your part in helping me understand some of the story that I'm part of. And helping me to be okay with today, to be sitting across from you, still wish my wife was here, but it's okay. It's okay. Yeah. Um, 
I didn't I I didn't know those two stories, and uh, I'm so glad you shared them. I think there's no more perfect of a picture of why we attempt to curate what we do, uh, which is it's beyond us. Uh, but there, not everybody gets that um, that God delivered video. Yeah, and and what a gift. Um, I hope everybody goes and sees that, uh, that hasn't, but you may not get a living version, a living, breathing version of conversations that you need to hear, um, of affirmations that you deserve to be touched with. Uh, but it's never too late for a happy ending. And we get to, as human beings for one another, be mirrors of grace and empathy and, uh, step into those moments and allow those conversations to happen when they need to happen, whether it's going back and rewriting old things that, uh, that didn't support your, your narrative, uh, whether it's speaking truth into the future, but I don't know that I've ever heard a better description of, of the value of it, of why that's important, uh, than hearing that story from you. Well, you know, you just mentioning that, you know, we, it's a strange thing, you know, my wife's buried in the cemetery behind our house, and I'm raising a five-year-old little girl without her. That wouldn't qualify as a happy ending. But it's a pretty joy-filled ending. Yeah. And first off, it's not an ending. It's a beginning. They're all beginnings. All the endings are beginnings of something else. But that's been a thing that I've kind of come to understand. In the story you were talking about, uh, the journey, a hero's journey, right? Mm-hmm. You know, stories are filled with incredible ups and downs. And sometimes they're at the same time. The highest peak that you're on, you're also personally on some lowest peak. And rather than how I've probably looked at them in the past, which was like, I just want to avoid all the lowest peaks. I don't want to avoid those. That's where the magic is. And I think... It's such a gift for me, and you know, maybe it changed down the road, but somehow, in spite of all of that, I wake up in the morning and pinching myself that I'm so lucky. Mm. How how do you do that in in the situation? I think it's just because you know, you our definition of happy ending isn't what we think it is. You know what I mean, like. I got to be part of something amazing. I didn't deserve to be part of it. I'm still part of it. I get to make something amazing tomorrow. It's it's pretty great. Yeah, I'm glad you clarified that. And, and you're right. I think we've been culturally conditioned uh, to have this perception of what happy, and it really gets pedestaled and almost uh, creates an, un, um, an expectation that could never really be we really couldn't land on it. Uh, but when you talk about it through the lens of um, happy is leaning into um, all parts of self. It's holding, yeah. uh, waking up and being able to pinch yourself from being overwhelmed with gratitude to falling into grief in the same day. Yeah. And both of those are okay. It's yeah. life. It's the way we were designed to be, but we are told we shouldn't. And uh, that if you have this, something's wrong with you. And it's actually not what's wrong with you. It's what's right with you. It's not what's wrong with you that you'd come to onsite and spend right. a little time detoxed off of technology and, and do some, do some work for yourself and other people. That's what's right with you. It's what's right with us. And so 
you've shared a lot of your story and we've connected a lot of dots, I think, that make you into who you are today. Uh, but ultimately, you're the only one that could answer that question. And if you could finish the sentence of I am, what would you say? Coming along. I would say I'm coming along. I mean, I'm, I've come a long, long, long way. But probably like you, you know, I wake up every single day examining the day before and not in a not in a negative way, just in a way that I'm 54 and I realize because of my wife, you don't know what, you know, how many more days, you don't know what your tomorrow looks like. And I don't want to waste any more of it. And so I, I find myself waking up every day thinking, can I be a better man? Can I be a better brother to my sisters? Can I be a better father, friend, whatever it happens to be? And, um, you know, I, I'm coming along. Coming along. Well, I think if, if you'd allow me to take the liberty to add to it, I, if I were reversing roles with you right now, I'd say I am humble. I am kind. Um, I am loving. Uh, I'm a good husband. I'm a good father. And I'm a good man. And I'm a good friend. And uh, I'm going to use all these gifts to light the world up and, that's who I am. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you for saying that for me. <laughs> I'd be afraid to say those. Yeah. I probably should though, right? Yeah. 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 I started with humble, so it kind of fit. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, you know, I, I, I want to be humble and I want to be kind and I want to be a good man. And I'm trying to be all of those things. And I, I have my moments when I fail, but you know, every day's a new day. Well, thank you, my friend. This thanks was for having encouraging. me on today. It I'm was glad fun. to be with you. Yeah, I always love being with you. And thanks for sharing your story with all of our all of our folks. It was just a blessing. Yes, sir. Thank you for listening today and for committing valuable time to share space with these powerful stories. Make sure you hit subscribe to get all of our inspiring conversations with these incredible people delivered directly to you. And if you found this conversation particularly impactful, consider supporting the show by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. When our emotional health is suffering, many of us begin to feel alone and overwhelmed. If you're in that place right now, we deeply encourage you to ask for help. If OnSite can support you in connecting the dots with one of our programs or other offerings, our admissions team would love to connect with you. Simply call one 800 341 7432 or visit onsiteworkshops.com.